Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome to this edition of Nakubo in Brief. I'm Liz Clark. I am Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo, and I am delighted today to be joined by Mac Heisey, Senior Vice President for Administration and Finance and CFO at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, and Ann Ogilby, a partner at Ropes & Gray, uh, also located in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, we're going to be talking about what is a pretty hot topic in higher education circles, and that is the topic of merging two institutions as colleges and universities look at challenges in their finance and their economic models. This topic seems to come up over and over again. But first, let's find out a little bit more about our guest. Mac, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, uh, Liz. Nice to be here. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm the chief financial officer at Berkeley College of Music. Uh, And essentially, in my role, I act as the chief business officer for the institution. So I have a responsibility for finance and accounting, HR, legal, risk management, facilities and real estate, and so forth. Um, I also have a long background in investment management. So I also am responsible, along with our investment committee, for the management of our endowment and pension plan assets. Terrific. How long have you been at Berkeley? Uh, Next year will be my 10th anniversary at Berkeley. Hey. Um, And Anne, please tell us a little bit about you and your role at Ropes and Gray. So I'm a member of our college and universities practice group. Uh, Ropes and Gray is a big law firm. I do corporate transactions for our higher ed and healthcare clients. There's actually a lot of overlap between those. And over the years have worked on many college and university mergers, divestitures, joint ventures, spit them up, re- repackage them somehow or other. Uh, very happy to have worked with Mac and Berkeley on its merger with the conservatory. Uh, recently worked with one of our other speakers uh, uh, at uh, Boston University on its merger with Wheelock College uh, and have done a number of different ones around the country from time to time over the years, uh, trying to make the world safe for our higher ed clients as they're either strong and growing or not so strong and needing to find a safe haven, hopefully. That's a lot of terrific background and information that's very timely, and I'm looking forward to tapping into that rich history and rich experience. Uh, Before we dive into the circumstances surrounding the Berklee College of Music and the Boston Conservatory merger, Matt, can you tell us just a little bit more about the Berklee College of Music? Sure. Um, So Berkeley College of Music has been around since the 40s, and uh, we started life as a jazz institution, but then have grown in many ways and uh, have expanded into areas beyond contemporary music, such as film scoring, um, 
engineering, uh, music therapy, and education, and related fields. So, uh, so we're a good mid-sized institution with about five to 6,000 students. Uh, we're located in Boston, but also have a campus in Valencia, Spain, and uh, just uh, started a new facility in New York City. And uh, we also have one of the leading uh, online education programs in the country, probably the leader in uh, music education. So... Um, Anyway, yeah, so we're, we're uh, pretty broad-based. A very renowned institution for sure. Well, we are here today because the Berkeley College of Music and the Boston Conservatory recently underwent a successful merger, and we want to uh, tell our listeners more about this story. So you've just told us a bit about the Berkeley College of Music. Can you share with us some information about the Boston Conservatory? Sure. Uh, the Boston Conservatory is uh, much smaller than Berkeley, but it has uh, nationally ranked programs in musical theater and dance and um, uh, draws a very selective uh, body of students every year. And so one of the key um, uh, reasons for our merger was that the combination of Berkeley as a leader in music and the conservatory as a leader in dance and musical theater, uh, bringing those two together elevates the combined institution into the performing arts. And that is our vision and uh, strategy for the coming years is to achieve global leadership in the performing arts. So we're very excited about it. And uh, so far, we're about three years uh, you know, uh, in as a combined institution and are making very good progress on all the fronts that we hold. So on the surface, it sounds like a common sense notion to approach a merger between the two institutions. Was there any initial hesitation? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, yes, and there are always challenges when you go through any mergers, I'm sure Anne will comment on as well. Um, but one of the advantages in our situation is that uh, Berkeley and the Boston Conservatory have campuses that are immediately adjacent to each other and have been for some time. And so uh, we have many opportunities to collaborate over the years. Um, and then we, uh, in 2014, uh, myself with my counterpart from the Boston Conservatory, uh, worked together in earnest on shared services. So we began joint dining then that moved into joint security arrangements, then that moved into joint facilities maintenance. And so we had a lot of time to get to know each other over the years. And, um, and then as we saw the changing environment and the opportunity for the two institutions to come together as a performing arts institution, uh, that's what really brought us uh, um, you know, to, this, uh, to that point. So it sounds like an evolution of time over time related to proximity, similarities in mission, and then some common sense business steps that had been undertaken uh, before you came to full-fledged merger. That's right. Uh, and there is risk involved in such undertakings, and you've been involved in a number of divestures and restructurings of higher education institutions. Can you describe some of the initial questions that you raise with colleges and universities who come to you with consideration of some type of similar action? Sure. And uh, most of the transactions I worked on in, say, the last five years have fallen into a couple of buckets. One is... Uh, 
as Mac was just talking about, where there's a logical reason for this to happen and it's grown somewhat organically over time and it's really kind of a win-win. Those are somewhat easier. There are lots of issues with governance, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, they aren't as risky per se, other than inherently any change always entails some risk. The one that's getting a lot more press uh, in the recent few years, and I'm sure is one of the reasons... Mac and I are sitting in this little glass box today, um, are where one of the institutions, or in some cases both, are experiencing some real financial trouble. And there is very real risk of many different kinds there. The most important, uh, I think, to all of us is the risk to your students and their families of an unexpected, rapid uh, failure by an institution. There have been a few quite spectacular ones of those uh, across the country recently. And um, the failure of a board and management team to anticipate that problem and come to at least a reasonably soft, if bumpy, landing for their students is a huge risk. Uh, uh, you ask me what are the kinds of things I talk about when I'm in that situation as opposed to the sort of win-win uh, merger. My first question is always, how long is your runway? Do you have time to make it at least through another full academic year with comfort? Are you concerned that might not happen? Uh, and my second question is, how good is your board? Do you have the right skill sets? Are they awake? Do they understand their situation? Have they got the right people advising them uh, in lots of different ways? And if you don't have the right skill set, um, you need to remedy that ASAP and get some financial savvy and muscle onto your board. And I'm actually going to follow up that question with another question. You mentioned the board, and board governance is certainly something we talk a lot about at Nakubo and when we convene business officers. Can you describe some of those good skills that you look for when you're asking institutions uh, about their boards? Uh, if you'd asked me that maybe 10 years ago, I would have said you need financial savvy on your board, which is always a good thing. What you actually need is common sense on your board, which the older I get, having done this now for 35 years, is perhaps the single rarest commodity uh, of, of most boards. We get really brilliant people who have been incredibly successful in their day jobs, but um, you know, you aren't necessarily going to get somebody who's got good common sense about a failing college just because he's been wildly successful as a venture capitalist or some other um, equally exalted uh, thing. So a good common sense, somebody really who is alert, doing their homework, asking questions, has good common sense, is willing to challenge their management team, not always the most uh, popular comment to make as a lawyer coming in uh, front of a management team, but... Um, you know, don't just say find everything. Make sure you dig and have comfort that the numbers you're getting make sense and that the runway looks like it's reasonable and that the plan, there's a plan B. You know, never have just one plan when you're a struggling institution. You ideally want a B and a C so you can fall back to those. Those are the kinds of things I look for on boards. So typically when we're speaking with business officers about working with boards, we're talking about one board. But when we're talking about mergers, we're talking about two boards and uh, two separate executive leadership structures. Uh, have you been in the situation where maybe you have common sense on one side of the equation and not so much on the other and uh, perhaps uh, illustrate the challenges of dealing with two or, or more organizations? I'm actually working on one that's in hiatus at the moment for just this reason. It's a deal that, to me, makes all the sense in the world. It's a statutory merger, a uh, different part of the country. Uh, uh, one side, fully gung-ho. 
the uh, and it's actually the stronger institution that's fully gung ho, and the weaker one, uh, the board is almost there, but the chair cannot seem to quite get over the hurdle of giving up in his giving up that's his view of the universe for his community control over this particular asset it's too hard on his watch and so finally after hitting our heads against the wall for almost a year and a half everybody's decided we're going to go on pause for nine months till the board chair retires because it's just too hard and it's causing too much damage now and the question is these things have a half-life you know, what happens in those nine months if you get too bad in the meantime or if some other person, white knight shows up or a dark knight or whatever night it is, you could have a very different outcome. And we've certainly seen in other stories of institutions that are headed for disillusion or closure that emotions and alumni can have a strong influence on the direction that these circumstances take. Um, Mac, back to you. It does sound like that this merger evolved over time, but during that evolution, did you consider any alternative alliances or other arrangements? Yes. Uh, in fact, during this, and, and a lot of the issues that Ann just mentioned did come up during our merger. Um, uh, and importantly, in higher education, you have to think about things like mission, uh, vision, and uh, whereas in the private sector, and I've done a couple mergers in the private sector, it's much more dollars and cents that you're worried about. So um, in our transaction, we did look at alternative arrangements, and um, there was a strong sense on uh, part of the conservatory, in fact, in looking at some of those. Um, and we did explore a number of different ones, but ultimately concluded that a full statutory merger of the two institutions was the best answer um, uh, in the end for a number of reasons. Uh, that includes um, being able to fully optimize the, the combined facilities of the two uh, institutions, the opportunity as a performing arts institution to expand our donor base uh, beyond what the two institutions themselves had, um, uh, expansion uh, for, of educational and actually career opportunities for the students in both institutions. So uh, there are a number of others as well, but after careful consideration, uh, we felt that a, a full merger of the two institutions was the best answer in this situation. So you mentioned dollars and cents in your comments just now, and we can't explore the details of uh, the merger of all assets, but I'm particularly curious about how endowment assets were managed. You are talking about two private institutions here. I'm not sure how much this question was a part of the negotiation as you came together as institutions. How are assets designed to be managed into perpetuity shifted into a new merged entity while at the same time preserving donor intentions? Actually, this was a big uh, factor in the merger and a big point in our negotiations. Um, the uh, Berkeley College of Music uh, endowment was significantly larger than the conservatory's endowment. We have uh, a very robust investment committee and investment process uh, uh, for uh, the college, whereas the conservatory is a smaller institution, a smaller endowment, uh, did not have that kind of um, uh, extensive breadth and depth in the investment process. Um, but, of course, it was very important for the donors, especially in the conservatory's case, that the um, uh, the aims of their uh, gifts were going to be um, uh, achieved. So, uh, in the end, what we ended up doing was 
commingling the endowments or combining the endowments for investment purposes. So there's one investment process, one set of managers, and so forth. But on the other side, in terms of the allocation of the earnings of the endowment each year uh, and making sure we're meeting the restrictions and objectives of the individual donors, that essentially stayed the same. Um, As I noted earlier, one of the things that has uh, been uh, a pleasant outcome of the merger is that uh, the donor base and the actual level of giving uh, for the conservatory has increased significantly since the uh, since the merger. That's great news. And it sounds like, and I, I may be going too deep in the weeds here uh, for you or for our listeners, but even across large institutions, there's a unitization of endowment investments. And it, it sounded like, it sounds like in the merger that that process was simply expanded to help uh, the conservatory assets come into the fold. That's correct. And let me just add there from the pointy-headed lawyer perspective, the restricted endowments aren't usually a problem because they're restricted. And unless you go to court and get them cypraed, as it's called, they've got to stay and be used for the restrictions. The action is typically on the unrestricted endowments and what is the negotiated position between the parties on that unrestricted endowment. With a, As Max said, with a relatively strong institution, there's a room for argument. With a weak institution, the ones I was talking about a minute ago, there usually is either nothing left or so little left that it's going to be used in the transition period. So in the really weaker situations, I have not seen this been a bit, be a big problem. That's very interesting because those unrestricted funds are also called board-designated funds, and I can see the possibility you spoke about challenges in dealing with the governance structure and with board members with emotions, and I can see that conversation all being tied up uh, together. So we're nearing the end of our conversation here, but uh, Mac and Anne, I'd like to give you each an opportunity to share some advice on that you may have for other institutions considering a merger or a similar move or any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share? Sure. Actually, I think there were a number of lessons learned from uh, from our merger. Um, number one is tackle the big issues early in your negotiations. Don't leave those to the end because they will undermine the process. But at the same time, look for early wins that you can communicate to your entire community. Um, The second thing I would say is ensure that both parties benefit uh, from this, not just the bigger institution. uh, The smaller institution has to feel that uh, they've realized something out of this transaction. Uh, The third point I would make is that it is a marathon. Our merger from beginning to end probably took 18 to 24 months from initial due diligence until closing. So you have to pace yourself, but at the same time, you have to establish deadlines to keep uh, to ensure steady progress. So we, we had firm deadlines around reaching a memorandum of understanding, a firm deadline on getting to a definitive agreement. So that kept everybody moving uh, forward. I would also say pay very careful attention to people on both sides of the inst- of the um, both institutions. Um, it's a very trying process for people who are doing their day jobs and then having to do all the merger stuff at the same time. And uh, so we looked at locking in key people early with retention agreements and bonuses and that kind of thing. But no matter what, you have to have contingency plans because you will lose people that you intend, did not intend to lose. I am going to ask a follow-up question. Uh, how involved were students as a part of that population of people that you're talking about? 
absolutely. So we had uh, we set up five different committees um, in um, evaluating and then building consensus around a shared vision for the two institutions. And uh, we brought in the student government, but then also conducted focus groups with uh, students to get their take on challenges, opportunities. What was funny was, in many ways, the students were out ahead of everybody else on uh, combining the two institutions. So um, they were just proved to be much more flexible and adaptive and uh, looking for opportunities. So, um, uh, but uh, absolutely, students are critical to include. And also, culture is one of the areas that uh, people often overlook. And even though we anticipated it, we underestimated how important retaining the most important elements of, um, of the cultures of the two institutions was in the merger. And so we had a separate culture committee set up just to look at that. Sure. There's traditions, there's songs, there's uh, mascots, there's logos that all need to be taken into consideration. That's right. Um, Anne, any closing remarks from you or advice you'd like to share? Uh, just a few. The first is, uh, if you're not in the happy scenario where it's a kind of win-win, two strong institutions coming together, start early. Uh, the runway is always shorter than you think it is, that your financial resources will take you. And when institutions start to fail, they tend to fail at an accelerating rate that was not easy to anticipate. Uh, the second is, no matter where you are, if you are a finance officer and you're sitting there thinking nobody on your board understands what you're talking about, you should go talk to your president and, if necessary, your board chair about beefing up your board. In these uncertain times, no one should have a board that's asleep or uh, unprepared to handle the difficult uh, challenges that are likely to confront them. Um, and then finally... Um, Picking up on a point that Mac made as an outsider in some ways to many of these processes, there is no shortcut to building trust. It takes a lot of time. We are animals at heart. You have to be physically in a room with someone, preferably breaking bread with them. Occasionally, alcohol helps as well. <laughs> uh, again and again and again to build trust. And until you have that trust, if you have a significant disparity between the two institutions, you will never persuade the other guy that this will be a safe place and I can trust these people to take care of my mission. You need the time to do that. So plan for the long haul. That is very sage advice for almost any challenge to find a pathway to fellowship with the folks with whom you're trying to solve problems. And thank you, Mac. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Nakubo in Brief. Thank you.